chapter 4, verses 22 through 44. Verses 22 through 24. And all bare him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Yea, ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the effect of our Savior's ministry at Nazareth. It created wonder, but did not produce faith. They marveled, but not believed. They admired the wisdom of his discourses, but will not own him to be the promised Messiah because of the poverty and meanness of Christ's condition. Is this not Joseph's son? They expected the son of a prince, not the son of a carpenter, to be their Messiah. Thence note that the poverty and meanness of Christ's condition was that which multitudes stumbled at, and which kept many, yea, most, from believing on him. None but a spiritual eye can discern beauty in the humbled and abased Savior. Observe, too, our Savior wonders not that so few of his countrymen, among whom he'd been bred and brought up, and with whom he'd lived most part of his time, did despise his person and reject his doctrine. He tells them, no prophet has honor in his own country, that is, very seldom has, teaching us that usually the ministers of God are most despised where they are most familiarly known. Sometimes the remembrance of their mean original and extraction, sometimes the poverty of their parents, sometimes the indecencies of their childhood, sometimes the follies of their youth, sometimes the fault of their families and relations are ripped up and made occasion of contempt. And therefore that prophet that comes from afar and has not been much known, gains the greatest reputation among a people who, being ignorant of his extraction, look upon his breeding as well as his calling to be divine. This good use ought to be made of our Savior's observation, that his ministers be very wise and discreet in conversation with their people, not making themselves cheap and common in every company, nor light and vain in any company, for such familiarity will breed contempt both of their persons and their doctrine. But our duty is by strictness and gravity of deportment to keep up an awe and esteem in the consciences of our people, always tempering our gravity with courtesy and a condescending affability. That minister which prostitutes his authority frustrates the end of his ministry and is the occasion of his own contempt. Verses 25 through 27. But I will tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Eliza, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Burkett notes, Here our Savior, by a double instance, confirms what he had last told his countrymen at Nazareth, namely, that prophets are most despised by their own countrymen and acquaintance, and that strangers oft-times have more advantage by a prophet than his own people. The first instance of this, which our Savior gives them, is in the days of Elias. Though there were many widows then in his own nation, yet none of them were qualified to receive his miracles, but a stranger, a widow of Sarepta. The second instance was in the days of Elijah. 
and though there were many lepers in and about the neighborhood, yet they being his countrymen despised him, and none were qualified for a cure but Naaman the Syrian, a man of another country. Thus the prophets of God, like some fishermen, catch least in their own pond, and do more good by their ministry among strangers than among their own countrymen, kinfolk, and near relation. No prophet is accepted in his own country. Verses 28 through 30. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the horrid impiety of the people of Nazareth in thrusting their Savior out of their city and their barbarous and bloody cruelty and bringing him to the brow of the hill with full intent to cast him down headlong. But Christ was to die a clean contrary way, not by throwing down, but by lifting up. O oh, ungrateful and unhappy Nazareth, is this the return you make that divine guest, which for thirty years had sojourned in your coasts? No wonder that the ablest preaching and the most exemplary living of the holiest and best of Christ's ministers obtain no greater success at this day amongst the people, when the presence of Christ at Nazareth for thirty years together had no better influence upon the minds and manners of that people. But instead of receiving his message, they rage at the messenger." Neither let any of the ministers of Christ think it strange that they are ignominiously despised when our master before us was in danger of being barbarously murdered, and that for his plain preaching to his own people, the men of Nazareth. But observe, too, the miraculous escape of our blessed Lord from the murdering hands of the wicked Nazarites. He, passing through the midst of them, went his way. How and after what manner he escaped is not declared, and therefore cannot without presumption be determined, although the Romanists, to make way for their doctrine of transubstantiation, positively affirm that contrary to the nature of a body, he penetrated through the breasts of the people. But whether he struck them with blindness that they did not see, or smote them with the fear that they durst not hold him, or whether by a greater strength than theirs, which his Godhead could easily supply his human nature with, he escaped from them, it is neither prudent to inquire nor possible to determine. We know it was an easy thing for him, who was God as well as man, to quit himself of any mortal enemies, and at the same time, when he rescued himself, could have ruined them by frowning them into hell or looking them into nothing. Verses 31 through 37. And came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Thou art come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him, and heard him not. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, being driven out of Nazareth by the fury of his own countrymen, departs to Capernaum, where he entered their synagogues and taught. 
Who can declare the pains that our Savior took and the hazards which he ran in preaching the everlasting gospel to lost sinners? But observe the smallness of his success. The people were astonished, but not believed. His doctrine produced admiration, but not faith. His auditors were admirers, but not believers. They were astonished at his doctrine, the reason of which astonishment is added, for his word was with power. That is, there was majesty in his person, spirituality in his preaching, and powerful miracles accompanying both and confirming both, of which the evangelist here gives us an account, namely the casting out of a devil in one possessed. Verse 33. There was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and he cried out. That is, the devil, that unclean spirit, did enter into him and bodily possess him. Amongst other many calamities which sin has brought upon our bodies, this is one, to be bodily possessed by Satan. The devil takes an inveterate malice against mankind, seeking to ruin our souls by his suggestions and temptations, and to destroy our bodies by some means or other. Oh, how much it is in our interest, as well as our duty, by prayer to put ourselves morning and evening under the divine care and protection that we may be preserved from the power and malice of evil spirits. Observe, too, the title here given to the devil. He is called the unclean spirit. The devils, those wicked spirits of hell, are most impure and filthy creatures, impure by reason of their original apostasy, impure by means of their actual and daily sins, such as murder and malice, lying and the like, by which they continually pollute themselves and impure by the means of their continual desire and endeavors to pollute mankind with the contagion of their own sins. Lord, how foul is the nature of sin, which makes the devil such a foul and filthy, such an impure and unclean creature. Observe 3. The substance of the devil's outcry. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee? Art thou come to destroy us? That is, to restrain us from the exercise of our power. The devil thinks himself destroyed when he's restrained from doing mischief. Observe 4. The title given by the devil to our Savior. He styles him the Holy One of God. How comes this acknowledgement out of the devil's mouth? Could an apostle make a profession beyond this? But how comes Satan to make it? For no good end and with no good intention, we may be sure. For the devil never speaks truth, for truth's sake, but for advantage's sake. Probably, one, he might make this profession that so he might bring the true profession into question, hoping that the truth, which received testimony from the father of lies, would be suspected. Or two, it might perhaps be done to make the people believe that our Savior had some familiarity with Satan and did work miracles by his help because he did confess him and seemed to put honor upon him. Hence we may learn that it is possible for a person to own and acknowledge Christ to be the true and only Savior and yet to miss of salvation by him. If a speculative knowledge and a verbal profession of Christ were sufficient for salvation, the devil himself would not miss of happiness. Observe 5. How our Savior rebukes the devil for his confession and commands him silence. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace. But why was this rebuke given to the devil, and his mouth stopped when he spake the truth? Answer 1. Because Christ knew that the devil confessed this on purpose to disgrace the truth. 2 because the devil was no fit person to make this profession. A testimony of truth from the father of lies is enough to render truth itself suspected. Yet the devil's evidence, 
that Christ was the Holy One of God will rise up in judgment against the wicked Pharisee, who shut their eyes against the miracles and stopped their ears against the doctrine of the Holy One of God. Observe, lastly, how the unclean spirit obeys the voice of Christ, but with great reluctancy and regret. When the unclean spirit had thrown him in the midst, he came out. Where, observe, the devil's spite at parting. He tears the man, throws him violently from place to place, showing how loath he was to be dispossessed. Where Satan has once gotten a hold and settled himself for a time, how unwilling is he to be cast out of possession. Yea, it is a torment and vexation to him to be cast out. It is much easier to keep out Satan than to cast him out. Satan may possess the body by God's permission, but he cannot possess our hearts without our own consent and approbation. It will be our wisdom to deny him entrance into our souls at first by rejecting his wicked motions and suggestions, for once entered he will, like the strong man armed, keep the house, till a stronger than he cast him out. Verses 38 and 39. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Burkett notes, observe here, one, that St. Peter, a disciple, yea, an apostle, was a married person. Neither the prophets of the Old Testament nor the apostles of the New did abhor the marriage bed, nor judge themselves too pure for an institution of their maker. The Church of Rome, by denying the lawfulness of priests' marriage, makes herself wiser than God, who says, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable amongst all men. Observe, too, Peter, though a good man, and his wife's mother probably a gracious woman, yet is his family visited with sickness. Strength of grace and dearness of respect, even from Christ himself, cannot prevail against diseases. God's own children are visited with bodily sickness as well as others. Observe 3. The divine power of Christ manifested in this miraculous cure. He stood over her, says St. Luke. He took her by the hand and lifted her up, says St. Mark. Here was an ordinary distemper cured after an extraordinary manner by a touch of Christ's hand in an instant. Immediately the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. That she could arise argues her cure miraculous. That she could and did arise and administer to Christ and his disciples argues her thankfulness. After Christ hath healed any of us, it ought to be our first care to administer unto him, that is, to employ our recovered strength in the service of Christ, and to improve our restored health to the honor and glory of Christ. Verses 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out, many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Burkett notes, The evangelist here declares sundry other cures wrought by our Savior. He healed the sick and dispossessed the devils. In our Savior's time, we read of many possessed with devils, but few of either before or afterwards. Probably, one, because Satan, perceiving the Messiah to become in the flesh to destroy his kingdom, did rage the more 
and discover greater malice and enmity against mankind. Two, perhaps Almighty God suffered Satan at that time to possess so many that Christ might have occasion to manifest his divine power by casting Satan out. And accordingly we find our Savior dispossessing all that were possessed by Satan. It is added that he suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. That is, Christ would not be made known to be the Son of God by the preaching of the devil, lest the world should from thence take occasion to think that our Savior held a correspondence with those wicked spirits, and that the miracles which he wrought were performed by the devil's assistance, as being one in combination with him. Possibly from the devil's owning Christ to be the Holy One of God, the Pharisees concluded that there was a compact and agreement betwixt them, and thereupon their affirmation was grounded, He casts out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Verses 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed, and went into a desert place. And the people sought him, and came unto him, and stayed him, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The great work and business of our Savior's life, to preach the gospel. I must preach the kingdom of God, for therefore came I forth. Preaching was Christ's great work. It is undoubtedly his ministers. Christ omitted some opportunities of working miracles that he might preach to other cities. This was his great work. Observe, too, it being Christ's great design to plant and propagate the gospel, he would not confine his ministry to one particular place, not to the great city of Capernaum, but resolved to preach the word in smaller towns and villages, leaving his ministers herein an instructive example to be as willing to preach the gospel in the smallest villages as in the largest and most populous cities, if God calls us thereunto. Let the place be never so obscure and mean, and the congregation never so small and little. If God sends us thither, the greatest of us must not think it beneath us to go and instruct a handful of people.